Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshenu b'mitzvotav etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk to you today about the idea of Torah and our covenant with God being countercultural, and that in fact the combination of mercy and justice together is a countercultural position. And so you and I are, are challenged, and the Torah portion makes it very clear this week. We're challenged to love what God loves and to value what God values, and to not let the culture that we grew up in hold us back from what's important to God. No matter how much you love the culture that you came out of, no culture gets everything right. You might love Jewish food, but even Jewish food can be dangerous. You might love Italian food, but too much pizza careful. But it's not just food, it's ethics and morals, values, traditions and understandings. No culture gets it all right. That's why every people group needs to learn from the Lord. What does he consider good? What does he value? So don't let the culture that you grew up in take you away from the things of God. There may be things that are acceptable in your culture, but they're not good in God's eyes. Let's read from the Torah portion this week a passage that speaks of this, Leviticus chapter 18. The first five verses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them, I am the Lord your God, you are not to engage in the activities found in the land of Egypt where you used to live. Now we have to have some understanding of what that means. Of course, in Egypt people ate and drank in normal ways. So this doesn't mean don't eat and drink. There were people who showed mercy and kindness. Think of the daughter of Pharaoh. She was an instrument of the Lord who rescued and showed mercy to the baby Moses. Without her, who knows what have, would have happened. God's plan was to use her together with the Jewish people to bring redemption for the Jews. So this idea, don't engage in the activities, means don't engage in the activities that are abhorrent to God. That requires then that we discover what's abhorrent to God, but even more so that we discover what God loves and what he values. That's so important, it's incumbent on us to not only receive from the cultures that we grew up in and the places where we grew up, but to receive higher authority from the word of God, which reveals to us what is pleasing to the Lord. So as the Lord is speaking to Israel, he's saying, you were, you were people who grew up in Egypt, but you just can't take the ways of Egypt with you. And then he says, and you're not to engage in the activities found in the land of Canaan. So you can't just take what you learned in the culture that you came out of, nor can you 
just simply learn from the culture you're going into. You are not to live by their laws, by their teachings, by their values, by their mores, by their ethics. Verse four, you are to obey my rulings and my laws, my mores, my ethics, my teachings, my values, and live accordingly. I am the Lord your God. You are to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, he will have life through them. It's not enough to know about them. Do them and live. I am the Lord. So the Lord is giving an instruction that is really a timeless instruction. Every one of us comes out of a culture. We come out of family. We come out of ethnic groups. We come out of um, societies that have strengths and weaknesses, and we cannot just carry everything with us. We have to learn. We have to pay attention. We have to become students of the Word of God in order to learn what is valuable to God, what's pleasing to God, and what is not pleasing. And it is not always obvious. If you go by the majority opinion, you will get a lot of things wrong. There are a lot of things that are permitted in society that aren't good in society. For instance, if you read in the Torah portion some of the details, there are all these boundaries, moral and ethical issues around sexuality. And in modern society, there's this idea if it's whatever two consenting adults approve of or decide to do, that's okay. But in the scriptures, it's not okay. So if you just go by what's legal or what's acceptable, you will miss important things. But it's not just about sexuality, it's about all sorts of things. And there are many laws and regulations taught in the scriptures that people these days are dismissive of and they'll say, well, that's just old fashioned. Well, the truth is it is old fashioned because it's from a few thousand years ago. So by definition, it's old fashioned. And some people on one side of the political spectrum say, well, this, this no longer reflects modern ways of thinking. You know, we, we should not be encumbered by this stuff because it's like so old. But then there are these scriptures that have rules and regulations of a completely different kind. So some look very conservative and others look very liberal. We'll get to one of the liberal ones in just a minute. And so if you come out of a conservative culture, you may embrace certain parts of the scriptures just from your heritage and your experience. If you come out of a liberal culture, you may embrace other parts. But here's the rub. The scriptures are like powerful to offend everybody in some way. Because every one of us has to learn something that goes against the grain. That goes against what other people think, the people around us. And maybe you have values that are really precious to you, that are pleasing to God, but they are not pleasing to your greater family or your friends. Take heart. We've got to learn. Now let's go to the next chapter, Leviticus 19. 
which has a radical idea of mercy as a kind of justice and justice being revealed as mercy. Leviticus 19, when you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land. So this is speaking to the children of Israel while they're on the journey through the wilderness about how they're going to live when they get in the land of promise. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to corners of your field and don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Likewise, don't gather the grapes left on the vine or fallen on the ground after harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. So we've talked about this before. The Lord is saying, here's the deal. I care about those who do not have enough to eat. And one of the ways I provide for them is this. All of the people involved in farming and agriculture need to grow some food for those folks and leave it there for them. Leave it in the corners, and after you make the first gleaning of the harvest, don't go back, let others glean after you. That's the rule. And the Lord says, that's the rule, I'm the Lord your God. When the Lord says, do it this way, I'm the Lord your God, it's something all moms and dads can relate to. Because there are times when your kids say, why? And your answer is, I, because I said so. How many, how many parents have used that? When all else fails, because I said so. And how many adults remember your parents saying that to you? It's sort of like that when the Lord says, I am the Lord your God, because I said so. That's why. Do it this way. And the Lord is saying, this is how I want mercy and justice to come together. This is how I want to take care of people. Now, there are liberal-minded people who love Leviticus 19, but they hate some of the other passages because they're too conservative. And they're conservative people who, who, who really love some of the uh, conservative-minded rules and regulations, but they don't like these others. And you know what happens is people tend to read very fast the parts of the scriptures they want to ignore. Or they look at the first few words and they flip. You know, it's like, well, I'm familiar with that. I don't need to hear about that. It's like... But we're to take to heart the things that are important to God. But what about when they go against our political cronies? Yeah, even then. Even then. Now let's see how it works. I want to use an example from Luke chapter 7. It's a wonderful example. The first 10 verses. You can see how it works in real life. And I want you to think about the cast of characters in the first few verses. When Yeshua, Luke chapter seven and verse one, when Yeshua had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, or Kfar Nachem. Say that with me, Kfar Nachem. Kfar means village, 
and Nachem means Nachem. It's a person's name. Uh, but it also means the comforter. So you could translate this as the village of the comforter. There, verse two, there a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Now think about the centurion. What army does the centurion serve in? Roman army. So he's not a Jew, right? He's a foreigner. He's a Gentile. Not only that, he's an occupier. The centurion, verse 3, the centurion heard of Yeshua and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking Yeshua to come and heal his servant. Okay, so who does the centurion send as his representatives first? Jewish elders. Yeah. And what is the request that they're making? Heal the servant of the centurion, right? Verse four, when the Jewish elders came to Yeshua, they pleaded earnestly with him. And pay attention to what their request is and the logic. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. They're not afraid. They're not saying, Yeshua, you know, people say all sorts of crazy things about you, but if you don't, if you don't come and do this, we're going to all suffer violence and trouble from the centurion because he's, he's got a terrible temper. He's cruel to us, and he forced us to come. We beg you, come and do something. That's not the logic at all. That's not the argument that they're making. They're saying, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. And who, who do they mean our nation? Israel, the Jewish people, yeah. And he built our synagogue. So Yeshua went with them. So you've got Yeshua, People are trying to figure out who he is, but the centurion has figured out something. Yeshua is a Jew who's a healer. Right? The centurion's the Roman officer. He's got a servant. You got elders of the Jews. They're leaders in the Jewish community in Capernaum. You've got our nation, the Jewish people, and you've got our synagogue, the building in which the community of faith is gathering there. Now, it's interesting about the, the future of Capernaum from that point on. In Capernaum, up into the 400s, in, into the 300s, maybe the 400s, so at least to the 4th century, the Messianic Jews and all the other Jews worshiped together in the same synagogues. In most places, there was a division after the um, destruction of the temple and the rise of the hegemony of the new rabbinic movement that developed after that. And there was a separation, and Messianic Jews were systematically, along with every other kind of Jew who didn't accept the authority of the, these new uh, leaders of the rabbinic community, 
they were systematically pushed out of the Jewish synagogues and forced to gather separately. It was a kind of uh, spiritual segregation and theological segregation, but also a political segregation that was forced upon people, but not in Capernaum. In Capernaum, the Messianic Jews and all the other Jews continued to worship for hundreds of years together. Very interesting place. Truly deserving of the name, Village of the Comforter, you could call it Comfort Town. Let's keep going. So Yeshua went with them, and he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him. See, the centurion hasn't come yet, but here's the word. Sir, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Pay attention to this. This is a Roman centurion, a high officer, who's saying to this Jewish vagabond, prophet, healer, miracle worker, maybe Messiah, uh, who others say is, you know, because he's Messiah, he's king of the Jews. So this is a Roman army officer saying, I didn't come to you myself because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And in fact, you could just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself, verse eight, am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I tell this one go and he goes. And that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. So the centurion is sending word to Yeshua, I know as a man with authority and a man under authority that I can speak to my soldiers, I can just give a command and they do it. And I can tell one, go out and he'll go. I can tell another one, come in and he'll come. And in the same way, I know if you just say, be healed, my servant will be healed. It'll be just like that. So this centurion who has incredible uh, power recognizes that Yeshua has higher power, greater power, a different kind of power. And he's saying to him, you have authority, your word is authoritative. If you say be healed, then my servant will be healed. Now this centurion is echoing the sentiments and the ideas that are expressed in the Haftorah blessing that we say after the reading of the prophetic scriptures every week. Let me read them to you. I'll read you the closing prayer in English. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, rock of all eternities, faithful in all generations, the trustworthy God who says and does, who speaks and makes it come to pass. All of whose words are true and righteous. Faithful are you, O Lord our God, and faithful are your words. For not one word of yours is turned back unfulfilled. For you are a, fa a faithful 
and compassionate God and King. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God who is faithful in all his words. And though the centurion isn't quoting this, he's expressing exactly the same sentiment. He's saying, I know this. I know this. If you speak, it will happen. That's all it will take. Verse 9. When Yeshua heard this, he was amazed. Now, he could have been amazed because he said, wow, you just like quoted from the Haftorah blessing. That was not what amazed him. He was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great emunah. Say that with me. Emunah. Even in Israel. Faith and faithfulness. You see, this man not only had faith, he was faithful. He was trusting God, the God of Israel, in a way that was countercultural for him. Do you see that? Because what did the Romans think? They thought Caesar was an incarnation of God. And they thought that Caesar was all-powerful. And they thought that imperial Rome was the most powerful. But he thought there was something special about the Jewish people. And there was something greater about the God of Israel than all the theological pretenders of Rome. And so he's not crying out to Roman gods or to Caesar for healing. He's crying out to Messiah Yeshua for healing. And Yeshua says, I haven't found such great faith in Israel. But it's not just that kind of spiritual faith, it's practical faith as well, it's faithfulness. Because this man loves the Jewish people and he built them a synagogue. Do you get that? It's sort of like Yeshua saying, well, I know that synagogue. Yeah, none of the Jews paid for it. When it was time for the building project, the centurion stepped up. Do you see how that's countercultural? Yeshua's admiring this uh, officer of a foreign army, of an invader, of an occupier. And he's saying, full of faith, unbelievable full of faithfulness, incredible. And it's not really a rebuke of the Jews in Capernaum, rather it is admiration of this Gentile, which is countercultural. do you see? Because the world will tell us then, and it will tell us now, that people can't get along, and that there are walls between people that cannot be overcome. And Yeshua is saying something different. The, the gospel here is telling us something different, that there was a Roman centurion in Capernaum who loved the Jewish people. And it wasn't just like feel-good love. It was love that was demonstrable. 
he paid for the synagogue to be built. Yeshua says, I tell you, I haven't found such great faithfulness and faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant, well, he'd been healed. Great faith, great faith and faithfulness, trusting and trustworthy. These are different sides of the centurion's faith. He trusted God, he trusted Yeshua, he loved the Jewish people, he demonstrated this love by his actions, and you know what? They appreciated him. Who were the first ones he sent to reach Yeshua? He sent Jewish elders. He had a good relationship. So if people tell you all the Jews rejected Yeshua, it's not true. It's simply not true. And if people tell you, you know what? Jews and Gentiles will never get along. That also isn't true. This one demonstrated his love by his actions. His generosity was noteworthy. And interestingly, it wasn't anonymous. It wasn't hidden. Do you remember that widow who Yeshua observed once bringing her widow's mite and giving it? And he said, that one gave more than all the rest of you, all the rest of us. She gave everything. So Yeshua took note of that. In the same way, the scriptures are taking note of the centurion. He made a big donation. We don't know exactly how much, but enough to build a synagogue. Would you call that a lot? <laughs> I would. But his, ge- his generosity wasn't self-seeking, nor was it crass. It was visible. It was highly regarded. But it was consistent with his reputation for generosity and love. Do you remember what Paul said later to the Corinthians? He said that if, if you minister, even in the supernatural, but it's without love, it's not authentic. It's not, it's not real. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. It's something else. Even if you are generous and give greatly to the needs of others, but it's not motivated by love, it's not authentic. So this one is identified as having love and generosity. Do you get that? But he's a Gentile. Do you know how controversial that would be? Because among the Jewish people, there were zealots. And among Yeshua's followers, there were zealots who were taking up armed resistance against the Romans. And I imagine that this was not well received by them. Yeah, here he is legitimizing the Romans. That's where it gets tricky. You see, Yeshua is trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that when you have faith in God, it's to bring you together across the boundaries of your culture. It's to teach you something that you'll never learn from your culture fully, from any culture fully. You can only learn from God. 
If you only fellowship with people who fit into one side of a narrow political spectrum, you'll miss some parts of what's pleasing to God and then you'll miss the joy. This, this centurion had great relationships with the locals around him. He's a great example for military officers, great example for anyone doing cross-cultural work. But he's a great example for all believers and a great example for Gentiles who are joining together with the Jewish people. But for that matter, he's a great example for Jews who want to be faithful to God and to God's people. That's why Yeshua said, wow, look at this faith. And look at this faithfulness. That's bigger than what I'm seeing among our people. He's a Great example for Jews about how God works among Gentiles to do things that Jews are not able to do on their own. He built them a synagogue. And it reminds me about Paul's teaching to the Roman believers that they're blessed by the Jewish people and to be a blessing to the Jewish people. And the idea that that Paul tries to get across is this, that the Jewish people need the fullness of heart and spirit from Gentiles, and Gentiles need the fullness of heart and spirit from the Jews. We need each other, and this is countercultural. Do you see? And once you grasp that, it will disarm powers and principalities who want to keep people separated from one another. And it will allow the ways of God to have supremacy rather than the ways of any one culture to have supremacy. So I want to encourage you. If if you read this week's Torah portion and you don't like one part of it because it's too liberal, good. And if you read a part... In this week's Torah portion, that's too conservative and you don't like that. Good, now you know which parts need to change in you. The parts that don't like what God likes. Isn't that simple? And on the other hand, if you see things that you'd never seen before that God loves, and you say, well, I've been kind of neutral or even worse. Not only I've been ignorant, I've been apathetic. You know the old joke about the, the guy who's going door to door taking a survey and he asked the person who answered the door, which do you think is the greater problem today in America, ignorance or apathy? The guy said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> when you put those aside, <laughs> When you put those aside and you say, I do want to know and I do want to care, everything can change. And when you do that, you're taking to heart the Torah portion from this week. So I want to pray for all of us that we'll take this stuff to heart. Lord, thank you that you have your ways, we have our ways, we want to make our ways more like your ways. Teach us, show us, instruct us, work with us, Lord that we would learn your ways, that we would be holy because and as you are holy. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.
We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Don't forget, coffee and fellowship next door. And don't forget, collect your children. Collect your children. <laughs> collect your children. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'era Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasemlecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and be gracious to you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.